1: I want to get on into the message tonight. It's a little different, something that I, not something I normally would get into, but as I studied this week, God kind of laid this on my heart, I've uh, had to do several, just realized I left my wallet at home, had uh, uh, several funerals I've had to preach recently, and uh, looking at the legacy that's left behind when they're gone, and and uh, it's, it's something that we're all going to leave behind at some point. Uh, something that's going to happen. Uh, we're going to be leaving. And, and I want to just kind of look at leaving a moral legacy. Could, can we do that? And if we do, what would it look like? So during my adult years, and, and I know you guys know this too, it's not just been here, it's been across the nation. We've had seen several ministers Multiple ministers who have succumbed to some temptation that Satan offers and they've fallen into sin. Uh, they've disgraced themselves, their family, their ministry. Sometimes it's a financial mishandling. Sometimes it's of sexual nature. There's all kinds of different things they do, but some way, shape, or form they fail. Some of these ministers, praise God, have gone through rehabilitation. They've returned to the pulpit. they have back into ministry and they're doing what God's called them to do. Uh, some have chosen to just stay in their new lives, and they've left the ministry completely. And some, believe it or not, have tried to do both. And you know, there's always somebody going to follow people even when they're as wrong as they can be. It's kind of sad, but people will follow them anyway. What comes to my mind, though, when I hear these stories, first of all, is I get sick to my stomach, because it hurts me. I don't like to hear that, especially if it's a friend of mine somebody that I knew. My heart aches for them, for their ministry, for their families, for all the people going through it. Then I remember this scripture from the top of Mount Gilboa. The Philistines had just defeated God's chosen people, the Israelites, again. King Saul, his son Jonathan, have both been killed. And news reaches King David, he's the king-elect, that everybody before him, everybody in line for the throne is gone. He didn't really know everything that had happened yet. He was stunned, and he decides he needs to write a eulogy, which becomes one of his psalms. There's a line in this song that's connected to the fall of King Saul. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 19, he says, How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen, and it seems to fit... When a minister of the gospel falls too, and then I began to wonder if that same line came back to haunt David about twenty years later when he too had his mistake and messed up. David had so successfully succeeded King Saul as king of Israel. David had got to be fifty years of age after he had composed so many songs. He was known as being a man of God. He had proved himself to be a valiant warrior. He became known as a man of compassion and valor, by far the most respected king in Israel's history. And even up to this day, the people of Israel will tell you David was their greatest king. They named their city after him. The flag of Israel has a blue star in the middle of it. They call it the Star of David. It's their national flag. But in spite of David having this problem, Just right before Bathsheba Gate, David took into his home Mephibosheth, who was Saul's relative, one of Saul's downling people, but he was a handicapped person. It was a lot of work for his family to take them in and take care of them, but he wanted to be kind. David was considerate. He was a caring king. He was the type of leader any one of us would gladly follow. We need to remind ourselves that any one of us are just moments away from Falling at any time. None of us are beyond falling into sin. The Bible teaches that if any man thinks he stands, beware lest he falls. None of us are perfect. But if we wish to leave a moral legacy, if we want people to remember us by a life that brought glory to God, if we want our children to follow God and live a moral and pure life, there's some steps we need to take so we don't fall. And if we've already messed up to ensure we don't make that same mistake again. Aren't we glad God gives us second chances? Amen. Now, David's fall was very severe, but it was not sudden. It kind of looks like it was sudden, but it really wasn't. F.B. Myers, one of the uh, best Bible scholars of the 20th century, said it this way, No man suddenly becomes base. The Romans had a statement that described it this way. It said, No man reaches the heights of vice at once. David didn't fall suddenly any more than a tree suddenly rots. Or a church suddenly splits. Or a marriage suddenly fractures. Doesn't happen that way. His fall began long before he crawled between the sheets with Bathsheba. David was weakened And for the sake of tonight's message, I'm just going to limit myself to three areas of weakness that I want to pay attention to. And the first area is, David ignored God's instructions. You start ignoring what God tells us to do, you set yourself up for problems. And how did he do this? He did it through polygamy. Polygamy weakened David. David married too many women in an effort to fit in what others considered an outward sign of success and power. It may surprise you to know that David and many of his contemporaries were polygamists. We go, wait a second. No, this is one of God's guys. And this was totally against the clear warnings from the Torah. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 17. And we're going to read this night, verses 14 through 17. He's giving them instructions as they're, they're going into the promised land about how they're going to set up. And Moses is teaching here and he says, you're about to enter the land the Lord your God has given you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. And if this happens, be sure to select as king the man the Lord your God chooses. You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. Listen to these next two verses. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses for the Lord has told you you never return to Egypt. In 17, the king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord and he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. Yet, in spite of that warning, David knew that was printed there ready for him to go. In 2 Samuel 5, 13, it kind of nonchalantly says, well, after moving from Hebron to Jerusalem, David married more concubines' and wives, and they had more sons and daughters. In fact, one of the translations says meanwhile, no big deal. Oh, by the way, it was serious business, and God said kings should not do this, and David ignored the instructions. We start down a pathway to failure when we start to ignore God's instructions. Listen to some of the names of David's wives. We got Ahinoam of Jezreel, Abigail the Carmelite, Makah the daughter of King Talmai of Geshur, Haggath, Abital, Eglah, and Michael. Many of these names you probably wouldn't recognize, may have never heard of, but he slept with every one of them. He had children with every one of them. In fact, before Bathsheba, David already had 17 children. Most of you would say, that's plenty. But the scripture says, meanwhile, when he got to Jerusalem, he took some more concubines and married more wives. Just to clarify what's going on, let's read what one commentator had to say about David. And I'm going to quote this. He says, even though his wives and concubines had increased, his passion was not abated. The king who took another man's wife already had a harem full of people. The simple fact is that the passion of sex is not satisfied by a full harem. It's increased. <clears throat> Having many women does not reduce a man's libido. It excites it. It stimulates it. David, being a man with a strong sexual appetite, thought, I will have more women. Thus, when he became king, he added to his harem, but his drive only intensified, unquote. Furthermore, while you're thinking about this harem that he has, think if you were somebody who was living in Israel at that time. Who was going to come up and blow the whistle on the king? Who's going to come up and tell him, you shouldn't do this? Just not something you think about doing. He had a humble beginning as a shepherd. He became a giant killer. 20 years of sterling leadership with choice men in the right places, a military force that every one of his foes respected. He had large boundaries that grew from 6,000 square miles when he took office to 60,000 square miles by this time. He was never defeated on the battlefield. He had exports and imports, a strong national defense, financial wealth, a beautiful new home, plans to build a new temple for God. Who's going to sit back and point fingers against such a man? So he married a few more men and privately increased his number of concubines. Whatever the king did. Look at this. 2 Samuel 3.36 tells us how the people felt. Whatever the king did pleased all the people. Wow. Everybody had just fallen into this trap thinking, it must be okay. Because everybody else is doing it. And that falls into what happens today in our own lives. We can watch and see how all the rest of the world is living and think, that must be normal. Well, they're doing it over at that church. We should do it in our church. They're doing it in their life. We should do it in ours. And they just looked at it and said, it pleased all the people. So number one, David ignored God's instructions and polygamy weakened him. Secondly, Success weakened David. Never doubt this. Hard times are good for us. David's opinion polls were at an all-time high. Had at least a 95% approval rating. People who got run for president can't get even in the positive side of it. David had 95% of the people approval of him. He was never defeated in battle. Maximum power, plenty of money, a luxurious lifestyle, a new palace. This is David, the magnificent king of Israel. He was handsome, had long auburn-colored hair. He was tanned from the sun, very muscular. And yet he was also a tender-hearted songwriter and singer. He was talented, compassionate, as reflected in his songs. And he was the king. You might say, well, if I was successful... I would stay true to God, but it's much tougher than it looks. See, when a nation is going through tough times, they call upon God. What happened right after 9-11? Church houses were filled across. People were opening their churches in the middle of the week because they couldn't get everybody in just so people go in and pray. See, tough times drive people to God. A few years ago when the economic downturn hit, people were back in church again because they were worried their job was going away. But when things are going well, they don't always remember him. We do the same things in our personal life. When we're broke, we got bills due. We have a lack of food on the table. We show up at church and pray for God to intervene. But when things are going well, do we remember those that are less fortunate than us? Success can weaken you. Success can make it a little harder for you to get through. And thirdly, indulgence weekend, David we're going to get into the story a little bit now indulgence weekend, David look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 2 Samuel chapter 11 reading from the NLT tonight says in the spring of the year that's the same time of the year we're in right now in the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war what a unique thing that's what they're going to do every year in the spring let's go out to war David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army, laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed. He's walking on the roof of the palace. He looks out over his city. He noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. This scripture tells us David was supposed to be going out to war. That's where he's supposed to be. But he was indulging himself. He didn't need to prove anything to anybody anymore. So he just stayed home, sent Joab out to fight. He says, I'm just going to do this for myself. Now, Joab was tough as a junkyard dog. <laughs> He knew how to fight. He'd been one of David's mighty men of valor for years. He could be counted on. He would kill and had killed plenty of men. He would defend David in a heartbeat. He had a little bit of a deceitful side, but he could fight. So David sent him out. David yawns. Since Joe about to fight, he just sort of stays around the house. And then the evening comes. He's bored. He's idle. Just wandering around, taking it easy. Kind of like when you get a chance to just sit there and surf the internet. Not looking for anything in particular. Just wandering around. See what you can run into. David sits up on his bed. He stretches, he yawns, he runs his, runs his fingers through his hair. Why was he in bed at that time of the day anyway? It still had to be light enough outside for him to see, because they didn't have electricity. (laughs) Nothing was shining out there, so it had to be early enough in the thing. And David's laying around in his pajamas. He's indulging himself. His guard is down. He's ripe for a fall. It's not his normal evening activity. Let me tell you what David says his normal evening activity is in Psalms, chapter 55, verse 17 and 18. He says, morning, noon, and night, cry out in my distress, and the Lord hears my voice. He ransoms ransoms me and keeps me safe from the battle raged against me, though many still oppose me. Morning, noon, and night, David prayed. That was his normal routine. It was time to pray. Not this day. He's laying around indulging himself, taking it easy. Look at Psalms 141, verses 2 through 4. It says, accept my prayer. As an incense offered to you, my upraised hands as an evening offering. Take control of what I say, O Lord, and guard my lips. Don't let me dr- drift toward evil or take part in acts of wickedness. Don't let me share in the delicacies of those who do wrong. David knew in that afternoon, that evening time, it was a time when temptation came to him. He said, I need to be here with my hands up before God, praising Him. And don't tempt me. Don't let me go towards that evil or wickedness. Now, each of us have different times of day where we're more susceptible to temptation than others. Some of us are morning people. Some of us are evening people. Some of us are nighttime people. In the mornings, the people that have to work days, we're getting ready for the day. We might be busy during the day we're working and staying busy. In the evenings, if you've got a family, you're still trying to do the dishes, get the kids in bed, So it's hard to get a lot of leisure time. But those of you that are past that or those after you get your kids in bed, kind of just collapse. David didn't have to worry about that stuff. He said, my evenings are set apart as a time to praise the Lord. He said, if I'm not praising God, it's a time for my temptations. But this evening will be an evening that will haunt David for the rest of his days. He's indulging himself. So as he walks around in his room, he hears some splashing outside, and he steps out onto his roof patio just to check it out, and he sees this lady bathing. You know the story. The Bible describes Bathsheba not as beautiful, but as very beautiful. Now, if you look back through history, the, the de- description of beauty has changed down through the years. I'm not sure she'd be as beautiful to us today as she was to them back then, but The way the Bible describes her, she was very beautiful to them. David sees her taking her bath, and lust takes over. And he loses all of his reasoning power. He doesn't think about who he is. He doesn't think what the consequences of his actions will be. At this time, his only thought is on the conquest he forgets everything God has ever taught him during his lifetime. He forgets everything that he himself wrote about how to respond in situations like this. He forgets that he belongs to God. It's this power that lust has over a human. And it can be male or female. Because this lust causes us to do the stupidest things for the stupidest reasons at the worst possible times. And lust, when it takes control, is seemingly unstoppable because all of our reasoning is gone. You guys are shouting tonight. David doesn't even know this lady's name, but he's already in heat. And when he inquires, they tell him, she's already married. That doesn't slow him down. So then they tell her what, tell him what family she comes from. So he'll take into account her background. So he won't bring shame to the family. That doesn't slow him down. Doesn't matter. Now, while I'm here, David is by far the one that's the biggest problem here. By far, he's the one's at fault. He's the king. He's God's chosen person. He knows better. But Bathsheba's not totally out of blame. See, she knew from her little house she could see into the palace. They could probably see back to where she was. And she chose to put herself out there. Not really sure whether he was looking for certain, but it was still daylight. And she's out there. So if David had been at war where he belonged, and if Bathsheba had just been a little bit more modest, none of this story would have happened. See how he weakened himself? say, well, what does that mean? I'm going to give you two minutes of my clothesline preaching. Ladies, when you leave the house to get ready to leave, don't look in the mirror and say, do I look sexy? We're warned against this in the New Testament. Instead, say, do I bring glory to God the way I'm dressed? When we lived in Kingston, Jamaica the pastor of the largest Assembly of God church there, they were very straightforward in Jamaica. They just told you what they thought. And he got up to preach one Sunday morning, church of about a thousand people. He's, he's preaching there, uh, Dr. Rob. And he says, I'm trying to figure out where I am this morning. Am I in church? Because I got a lot of bosoms looking back at me today. Up at Cornerstone Church in Nashville, Sister Bly, who just recently passed away, uh, when she was in her 90s, her early 90s, she lived to, to be over 100, but when she was in her early 90s, they'd moved they'd moved this building, and, and they were trying to keep it cold so people would wear extra clothing in the church. But she would sit in the front row, and she had this job where she would walk down along the front row with blankets, and she'd look at a lady, and she goes, you know, you got to cover that up, because we don't need him looking at that while he's up there trying to preach. Now, I guess when you've got a 90-year-old lady coming to you and telling you to cover up, you kind of just let her do that, all right? Uh, (laughs) All right, I'm finished. (laughs) After David had had his way with Bathsheba and she had left his place, I wonder, as his reasoning slowly returned to him, if he at that point realized that he's messed up. But if it wasn't then... For certain, when she knocked on the door and said, hey, I'm pregnant, he knew he was in trouble then. He knew his servants knew what happened because they went and got her and took her back. He, How am I going to cover this up? And few things affect a family more than a moral failure. When one part of a family fails, it affects the whole family. It doesn't matter whether it's messing with your money and you blow it all on silly things. Or whether it's a sexual thing or just what the moral failure can be, it affects everybody. Healing can come. Forgiveness can come. It's a totally another sermon. Tonight, I can stand here and speak about this topic only by the grace of God. The last 40 years, I've been faithful to my wife. Temptations have been there. Many years I traveled on business. I was away from home several days a week, but I can honestly say that when all the guys that I was traveling with would go out after work and they'd head to the strip clubs or they'd head down to the bars, I'd go to the hotel room and call my wife. But it's only by the grace of God that I have that testimony, folks. Anybody can mess up. You can have this same testimony from this day forward. It may not be your past, but it can be your future. Touch your neighbor, say it can be your future. But for this to be your future, we need to know what we got to do to protect ourselves. And I want to kind of give you a couple little points here to know what we need to address. And the first thing is we got to try to keep from thinking that we're safe. We got to keep from thinking safe. Well, I'm a Christian; that can't happen to me. Or I'm married. Or we're too much in love. Or we're too old. I just saw this not too long ago. Do you know there's an epidemic of sexually transmitted infections in the nursing homes in America right now? Don't tell me you're too old. You can say, we're too poor. We're too educated or we're too busy, we're too mature, we're too important. None of those things offer you any protection. What they do, though, is maybe cause you to let down your guard if you think that's what's happening. We drop our defenses because it can't happen to us. So we've got to acknowledge our weakness. That's what we've got to do. We've got to acknowledge our weakness. We've got to acknowledge that we're weak and that at any given moment we can fall. But there's, remember, 2 Corinthians 12, 10 says... When I am weak, I am made strong. We can't do it by ourselves, but we can do it through God. We can do it through God. It's not through my power, it's through His power. Second thing I want you to learn to do is to guard your leisure time. Having time on our hands with nothing to do is perilous. Especially if we're just a little bit depressed. We're just feeling a little bit let down. We think we need to reward ourselves somehow or other. Maybe we're disappointed in ourselves even. So we try to pick ourselves up and make ourselves feel a little better about ourselves. And that's when trouble can begin. There's right now a worldwide crisis happening with the Internet. It affects both sexes. It affects young people, old people, and everybody in between. Pornography is just a click away. It's very addictive. I've had couples sit in my office while he admits to having some emotional affair with some lady online and thinking it would never happen to them. Uh, or was that something where Pastor Davis once said, he goes, I can't figure out why anybody wants to have a relationship with an imaginary woman when they got a real woman sitting in the other room. But it happens. It happens. Billions of dollars are made every year through online pornography. Families are ruined. It's done in secret. You think nobody knows. But your legacy is in jeopardy. Family computers, laptops, your smartphones, tablets, all of this, it's all available everywhere. You can click on the wrong link by accident and get this stuff to pop up. Well, we need to put those devices and use them out where everybody can see us so we're not doing something in secret. Just not too long ago, ABC News was doing a report and they, they were talking about teenagers. And when you talk about the middle schoolers, it was sixth to eighth graders that were, parents were taking their cell phones away so they couldn't be on them when they went to bed. And the kids were getting up after they were put to bed and coming back to use the family computer downstairs to get online and surf for porn while everybody was asleep. The parents would find it when they went through histories and looked in their, their browser histories and things. But our TV shows, our movies, act like it's not a big deal if you look at this stuff. Nobody's getting hurt. Yet every year, thousands of little girls and now boys are being sold into sexual slavery all over the world so people can view this in the privacy of their own home. We were, well, and I talk about Jamaica a lot because we lived there seven years but while we were there, they were running ads. They not running ads. They were t- telling stories in the newspaper. The police were trying to crack down on the, the sla- sex slavery that was going on there in the country and these places where tourists were going. Tourists would come in with the cruise ships, or they come in to fly and stay. And these clubs they would go to on the weekends. And these these guys were literally holding auctions for these kids on Thursdays so they could tell which clubs they were going to be working at on Fridays and Saturdays for the tourists. And they would move, because every week the police would raid the spot they were at last week, they'd move it to another spot. So they could try to stay ahead of the police in this thing. But here's another startling statistic. About 30% of, at a minimum, that's almost a third at a minimum, of the people inside the church are also addicted to pornography. Wow, I've got an article I want to read a little bit from. This is not written by a minister. This is written by a psychologist. Came from uh, I believe it was CBS's website. This is what the psychologist says. We're talking about women. It says, women and the media have linked consuming porn or behaving like a porn actress with instant money, fame, power, glamour, prestige, respectability, and social acceptability. In other words, if you become a porn actress or behave like one, you're going to triumph in all of these things. Paris Hilton, Kim Kardashian became famous and rich for making a sex tape. And they spun off empires of TV shows. Fashion lines, perfumes, paid appearances. The message is that this leads to the other. But it's women who made the Kardashians famous. And it's women who have become the fans and consumers of everything Kardashian and books such as Fifty Shades of Grey. Porn could never have become mainstream and socially acceptable without the support and endorsement by women. And accordingly, girls are more fascinated and driven by the desire to become famous than they are to become an engineer, a doctor, or a scientist. Kim Kardashian has over 14 million followers on Twitter. Women are creating new values and morality, promoting money, power, and glamour as being more important than intelligence, achievement, motherhood, or contribution. You think pornography is just a male problem, but it's not, it's both it's on both sides so guard your leisure we used to say an idle mind is a devil's workshop it's not scripture but it's good there is something to say for being busy guard your leisure acknowledge your weakness you're not immune you don't have any special powers we need to say to ourselves this could happen to us at any time let me just be on my guard now, the second side of this to keep from falling is we need to set up some accountability things. We need to remain accountable. We need to have, if we have an ultra-private life, it's preparation for a fall. Get somebody from the same sex that you trust, that you can get together with. They can ask you the hard questions. They can ask you, have you done something wrong? And then if they're doing this right, they'll probably ask at the end of did you just lie to me? But remain accountable. Let somebody into there. If you're serious about staying out of this, let somebody help you with this. And the second thing, rehearse the consequences before the fact. Don't rationalize them. But before you make a great moral disaster, sit down, write out what could be the consequences. Don't wait until you're in the middle of a temptation to try to think because you can't think there. Do it now. Do it when you go home. Write down what could possibly happen if, I were, if you were to fall and then rehearse them over in your mind. Who's going to be hurt? Is my wife going to be hurt if I do this? Are my kids going to follow my example and, and do these things? Are they going to think, that? well, dad did it, it must be okay. Mom did this, it must be all right. How about people you've been witnessing to on the job? What are they going to think? You've been inviting them to come to church and then this is what you do. Who's going to be affected by this? Start rehearsing those consequences before you get there. This is to help you think a little bit. We're just trying to figure out some ways to put some roadblocks in front of us, to slow that down. But I want you to know something here. The sin of immorality is not unforgivable. Well, that's true. If you've already been down this road, today can be a new beginning to a new legacy for your family. And if you haven't succumbed to this sin, we're hoping that tonight you can start to take steps to protect yourself. David's life was never the same after that one night stand with Bathsheba. Never the same. He was forgiven. He wrote more Psalms. But the sword never left his house. That child died. His own children did other horrible things, rape, incest, murder. See, dad's character didn't back up his authority. He never learned how to explain to his sons that that what he did was wrong, so they wouldn't follow in his footsteps.